Gosh, I love that last song, Only a Holy God. Um, Brad texted me this week on, on Monday and said, hey, I like this song. Do you think, it, do you think we could do it? And so I, I listened to it and, and said, yes, absolutely. This is the kind of song that we need to be singing as a church. And uh, so great job, guys. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning. Um, I think that, that song does a great job of putting God's holiness and his power and his authority into perspective for us. I think it's good for us to be reminded that we serve no other God. There is no other God like our God. Amen? Amen. So um, I have to admit, this is quite a different feeling for me this morning uh, to be up here at this point in the service, um, especially because I don't have an instrument on me. It just feels weird. I don't know what to do with my hands. Um, But uh, if you're new here this morning, my name is Matt Bowen, and I am the music minister here. So I'm usually doing what Brad just did. Um, But our pastor, Jeremiah Smith, he is out of town today. And so he asked me if I would be willing to preach in his place. And so here I am, and I certainly appreciate Jeremiah's um, trust to allow me the privilege to speak with you today. And it certainly is a privilege. Um, Anytime that we open up the Bible and we read its words, we are reading God's revelation to us. This is what we believe to be authoritative. This is what we believe to be sufficient for our knowledge of God, who he is, his character, his divine nature, what he's done for us, how he moves and how he works within his creation. This is where we learn of our desperate need for a Savior, and this is where we learn that we have hope in Jesus Christ. And so to be the one this morning to read these words to you, um, to explain the text, and to interpret the text, and to apply the text, it's, ex- it's an extremely humbling uh, responsibility. So allow me to pray for us this morning that we would hear what God intends for us to hear, that the text would speak for itself. Um, that we would find once again that it is living, and that it is active, and that it is crucial, and it's relevant for our daily lives. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this morning. We thank you for the breath in our lungs. We thank you that you have given us another day to worship you, to serve and obey you, and to be a light in this world that so desperately needs you. God, we've, we've sung of your holiness today. Pray that you would open our hearts now to receive your holy word. Convict us of the areas that need to change. Show us our hidden faults. Grant us the humility to acknowledge that we are not perfect and that we all need your grace. Pray that you would allow your word to transform us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3, verse 6. Feel free to use the table of contents. It's a small book. Um, In my Bible, it's only two pages. And if you don't have a Bible, no worries. There should be one in the pew back in front of you. And it's on page 753. So um, I think what we're going to see today in this passage is a remarkable example of what a genuine response to God is looks like. And it comes from the most unlikely of characters. Like when you think of biblical examples of how to respond to God appropriately, you tend to think of your heroes of the faith. You tend to think of Abraham or Moses or 
you think of David or you think of Paul, uh, your mind doesn't typically jump to the people of Nineveh or the king of Nineveh. But in looking at the way in which the king and these people responded and reacted to the word of the Lord, I see three characteristics that I believe all of us could learn from and strive for in our own personal responses to God. What we're going to see this morning is that the people of Nineveh and the king of Nineveh responded to God humbly, quickly, and wholeheartedly. Humbly, quickly, and wholeheartedly. And, and I believe that we should do the same. If you haven't been with us during this series on Jonah, I want to catch you up to speed. So I'm going to try to paraphrase the story as best I can. Uh, and if you have been here, I know this may be getting old, but please stay with me. You never know what you can learn the hundredth time you've heard something, okay? So chapter one begins with God telling the prophet Jonah to preach to the Ninevites. Now this was a group of some pretty bad people. They were doing some pretty evil things. But rather than responding rightly, Jonah bolts in the opposite direction. He hitches a ride on a, on a ship with some sailors, and he hunkers down in the bottom of the ship, and he falls asleep. It's the perfect model of obedience, right? Of course, God's not too thrilled at this, and he sends a big storm to get Jonah's attention. And long story short, the sailors find out that Jonah is the reason for the storm. And after some further discussion, Jonah ends up volunteering to be thrown into the sea. And so as a result of this, the storm stops. And the sailors actually respond to God in reverence. And they offer sacrifices to him. Jonah, on the other hand, uh, is not so lucky. He gets swallowed by a fish. And so in chapter 2, we find that while inside the fish, Jonah kind of he kind of comes to his senses a little bit, and, and this whole chapter is this prayer that Jonah offers to God, acknowledging that God has saved him, and that God has remembered him, and that salvation only belongs to the Lord. So it kind of seems like Jonah finally is ready to be obedient, and after three days and three nights, God speaks to the fish, and it spits Jonah back up on dry land. And so we see in chapter 3, this is what we looked at last week, Chapter 3 begins much like chapter 1 in that God tells Jonah once again to preach to the Ninevites. This time, however, Jonah has a better response. He actually does what the Lord asks, and he makes his way into the city of Nineveh. But what he preaches is less of a sermon and more of an indictment upon these people. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. No explanation of why. And no explanation of how these people could avoid this impending doom. But surprisingly, though, much like the sailors responded, all of the people in Nineveh choose to believe God's word. And so they call for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, every one of them, from the least to the greatest. And this is where we pick up this morning in chapter 3, verse 6. So let's look at that together. The word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them 
call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The first thing I want you to see today is that the king responds in humility. The king responds in humility. So let's look at that first line. The word of the Lord reached the king. So as you remember in verse 5, the whole city has already begun fasting and repenting. But now the news is finally making its way up the ranks to the king. Now think about that for a minute. The king is the last to know that this massive movement has broken out in his city. I mean, it must have been causing all sorts of disturbances and certainly disrupting their economic system. Uh, I mean, if people are fasting, then they're likely not buying food in the marketplace, right? And for an agrarian economy, I've got to think that that slowed things down. Um, Then again, if you were in the sackcloth industry, business was booming. (laughs) But this citywide fast and call to repentance was certainly not what the king had ordered. So I imagine waking up to find that the people that you rule are operating on the authority of someone other than you, that must have been a huge blow to his image. I mean, most rulers would quash this kind of thing, wouldn't they? They would most certainly see it as a threat. But that's not how this king responded. Let's see what he does. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Whoa. That is a radical response. This is not the kind of response that you would expect. Rather than using his throne to put an end, a forceful end to this, what does he do? He removes himself from his throne. Rather than remaining dressed as a king in all his royal garb and protecting his image, what does he do? He removes his robe and he covers himself in sackcloth and he sits down in ashes. He takes a posture of humility. As you uh, may remember from last week, sackcloth was an outward sign of repentance and humility. And so in scripture, we see people often wore sackcloth when they were mourning or they were distraught over something. And so in a similar way, ashes were used to signify desolation and ruin. So people would put ashes on their heads or they would put it on their body to show the condition of their hearts and to display their inward ruin. So the response of this king, it's almost unbelievable. I mean, let me remind you that that Nineveh was an evil city. I mean, it was filled with people who wanted nothing I mean, nothing to do with God. These people delighted in wrongdoing. They were a violent people. Their sin was so great that God himself was going to overthrow them. But rather than digging in his heels, raising his fist and shouting, not in my city, the king takes the posture of humility and he recognizes God's authority over his own. Wow. Man, I think it, At times, it's so easy for us to think that we are the ultimate authority over the direction of our lives. Like, we we say that we serve God with our lips, but ultimately, when push comes to shove, we hold the final say, don't we? 
But that's not what God desires. He desires humility. The Bible says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think this is the first thing that we can learn from our passage today, is that an appropriate response to God starts with humility. And as a side note, as I was reading this, um, I think this is a great example that proves to us that with God, anyone can change, even kings. I mean, keep that in mind when you're praying for our nation's leaders or the leaders of other nations. In this passage, we've seen what God can do. I love what Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Don't stop praying for the leaders of our nation, and please don't forget to pray for the leaders of other nations. God can do things that seem impossible. So the second thing I want you to see today is that the king responds quickly. The king responds quickly. So when the, the news finally reach him, reaches him, he doesn't stop to consult his advisors. He doesn't try to come up with a strategy to take care of the situation. Or he doesn't even try to bargain with God. He hears the news and he immediately responds with repentance. I mean, let's contrast that with how Jonah's responded up to this point. I mean, he's supposed to be the man of God. He is the prophet. He is the mouthpiece for God. But rather than responding quickly, Jonah runs from God in the complete opposite direction. And he has a bad attitude. As we'll see in chapter 4, he ends up throwing a pity party for himself. Which is the better model of obedience? Um, speaking of obedience, so my wife and I have three little girls, ages 5, 3, and 1. And needless to say, obedience is a topic that comes up from time to time in our household. Uh, shocker. It's a funny thing. You don't have to teach kids disobedience. That comes quite naturally. But teaching them obedience can be challenging at times. In fact, well, teaching them anything can be challenging for that matter. Um, like, for instance, we've been trying to teach them some common values of our household that Bowens live by. Like, we treat others with respect. Or... We share our things because they're just things. Or we get what we get and we don't throw a fit. Can I get an amen? <laughs> well, uh, one value that we've been instilling in our children recently is that Bowens never quit. This value came about when our oldest daughter, Lucy, would get so frustrated with herself when she couldn't do things to the level that she wanted to. And this came out particularly when she was coloring. Uh, she would compare her drawing with the real thing, and then she would just quit because it didn't look just like the real thing. Um, suffice it to say, she's a little bit of a perfectionist, which I admit uh, she gets from her father. And it's not a bad thing. It's just, a, it's just a quality that needs to be guided, right? So every time she would get worked up and she would get frustrated, my response to her would be to remind her that Bowens don't quit, Lucy. Bowens don't quit. Or Bowens never quit, excuse me. Bowens never quit. And, uh, and you know what? It worked. Her resolve strengthened, and she would push herself because she knew that she was a Bowen, and Bowens never quit. Now, if you have more than one child, then you know you can't use the same tactics on all of them. Uh, like what works for one won't work for the other one. What motivates 
one demotivates the other one. And so my second daughter, Alice, she's a lot different from Lucy, as you would expect. She is the free spirit. She's not goal-oriented like Lucy. She's not motivated by the same thing Lucy is. Alice is driven by what's fun and what's exciting and what's crazy. I mean, seriously, if, if I had a word to describe Alice, it would just be crazy. The crazier, the better. There's never a dull moment with her. So a few weeks ago, um, Lucy and Alice came home from, from preschool, and as we typically do, Maddie and I asked how their day was. And they responded with the typical, good. And so we asked some more probing questions like, well, did you, did you make anything? Or did you read any books? Did you make any friends? And then Alice chirped up and, and said, oh yeah, mommy and daddy, you'd be so proud of me. And we were like, oh, oh really? Okay, awesome. Why is that, sweetie? And she goes, well, in class today, while we were doing crafts, I kept putting my feet on the table, and my teacher told me not to. But I kept doing it, and she said, Alice, you need to quit that. And I said, no, because Bowens never quit. <laughs> and that's when we realized we failed as parents. So we've since modified our value statement to Bowens never quit doing what is right. Obedience can be a tricky thing, can't it? It's certainly not easy, and it's typically not what we want to do. But that's why the response of this king is so amazing. He believed God, and he repented immediately. In fact, if you look at all the characters in this book, they all believe God and respond quickly, apart from Jonah. The sailors on the ship believe God and responded quickly. The people of Nineveh believed God and responded quickly. And we see the king believes God, and he responds quickly. One scholar said this, Rarely does a biblical text recount such a positive response on the part of anyone, which is then all the more surprising that it is the people of Nineveh, a despised pagan people, who show such remarkable resolve to change in the response to the word of the Lord. I think this is the second thing that we can learn from our passage today. Not only should an appropriate response to God start with humility, but it should be done quickly. So let's see what happens next. Verse 7. Verse 7 says this. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. I think the third thing that I want you to see today is that the king responds wholeheartedly. He responds wholeheartedly. So at this point, we know that the people of Nineveh were already fasting and wearing sackcloth. So why is the king issuing this proclamation? It's kind of redundant, isn't it? Well, for one, everything that's happened up to this point has happened from the bottom up, kind of grassroots style. The king was the last to know. And so by issuing this proclamation, this was an opportunity for the king to affirm what was already going on, but from the top down. Also, you may have noticed that the king adds a few more requirements to this call of repentance. In addition to people fasting and wearing sackcloth, he calls for man 
and beast to fast and wear sackcloth as well. Now, the word for beast here most likely refers to horses or mules or possibly camels. But this is a remarkable statement. I mean, think about it. It's one thing to make yourself fast from food and water, but to require it of your horses, that does take it to another level. That's quite a sacrifice. But they do it anyway to show their remorse over their sin. And um, dressing a horse in sackcloth kind of seems like an odd thing, doesn't it? Can you imagine it? Um, But really, it's not uncommon to see horses dressed for battle or for festivals or for funerals. In fact, we still see that today. As animals are often viewed as an extension of a person, it was only fitting that they be stripped of their normal trappings and donned with clothing more appropriate for the occasion of grief. One scholar remarked, Men think it strange that the horses at Nineveh were covered in sackcloth and forget how at the funerals of the rich, black horses are chosen and are clothed with black velvet. All of this was a public display of remorse and of sorrow and of mourning. These people were truly distraught over their sin, and they wanted to show it. But not only was this an outward demonstration, but it came from their hearts. In verse 8, that we see the command to call out mightily to God. This is a cry of remorse and a cry of distress. It's not just, oh, I'm sorry. It's much deeper and more heartfelt. Uh, if you've ever had children apologize to you, um, you can easily spot the difference between a child who is just saying it to get out of trouble or one who truly means it, right? In this case, I believe that the Ninevites truly meant it and that the king truly wanted them to repent and turn of their sin. In verse 9, the king says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I love how they're not even certain that what they're doing is going to work. Who knows? This statement makes me believe that their motivations for repenting were sincere. They weren't just doing all this to get out of trouble. I mean, you could, you could make the argument, well, they're scared. Of course they would repent. They don't want to be destroyed. People will say or do most anything to get out of trouble, won't they? And I say, yeah, but the fact that they don't even know if this is going to work, I think that speaks volumes. I think it, I think it speaks more to the contrition of their hearts than it does to them just trying to get out of trouble. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that they did want to get out of trouble, but I believe their acts of repentance and turning from their evil works and calling out mightily to God shows that a heart change had occurred. These people did the hard thing, even though they didn't know if God was going to relent from his anger and his wrath and from the judgment that they knew they deserved. This was motivated by heart change. That's the third thing that we can learn from this passage. God wants us to respond to him wholeheartedly. So I want to I share a few final thoughts before we end our time together this morning. You know, in a passage like this, it's always good to be reminded of the attributes of God's holiness and his justice. God is holy, which means he is utterly and distinctly different from anything else in all creation. He is fully pure, and, then, and in him there is no fault or imperfection. 
And God is also just, which means that he is fair. Therefore, sin must be dealt with. Fortunately for us, we live on this side of the cross. But make no mistake, God's righteous anger burns against sin. We don't deserve anything less than what the people of Nineveh deserved. But thankfully, because of the cross, the full wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus Christ as he bore the punishment that we deserved. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In the same way that God extended mercy to the people of Nineveh by giving them a chance to repent, he extends grace and mercy to all of us, giving us a chance to repent and believe in Jesus. I think it's, uh, I think it's sometimes easy to miss the underlying compassion that God is displaying here. God could easily overthrow this city without any warning, but he doesn't. And this isn't the only time that we've seen God's compassion in this book. We see it when the sailors believed in God after he calmed the storm. We see it when rather than letting Jonah drown, God actually sends a fish to rescue him. And we see it here as God provides a chance for the people of Nineveh to turn from their ways and worship him. As I was reading through this story, I couldn't help but think of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I think there's so many parallels between this, what we're reading in Jonah, and this parable. So if you can turn over to Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Um, let me read this for us together. He, meaning Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the parallels in this passage? Is Jonah not just like the Pharisee? Jonah is so proud of himself that he can't even bring himself to respond to God's call to preach to these people. I think that he would consider them to be the other men, right? The extortioners, the adulterers, the unjust. Jonah has seen and experienced God's compassion firsthand, yet he is slow to extend it to others. And when he finally does... It's half-hearted. And what about these Ninevites, man? Are they not just like the tax collector who would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
You see, the Pharisee thought that it was his actions that put him in right standing with God. But the tax collector could only but cast himself upon God's mercy with his whole heart. God wants us to serve him and respond to him humbly, quickly, and wholeheartedly. So before I close this morning, I want to ask a few questions of us to allow us to examine our hearts. You know, so often we are so blind to our own shortcomings, aren't we? So my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would show us our hidden faults, where we need to change, not just because we want to be better people, but so that we will be more effective followers of Christ who care deeply for our families, for each other, and for the lost. So in light of what we've seen from God's word today, let me ask you these questions. Has the pride of all the things that we've done for God made us forget the compassion that we ourselves have received? Do we look down our nose at others who aren't as put together as us? Who we think aren't as spiritual as we are? Do we need to repent of this? Do we respond quickly and appropriately when God asks us to do something? How about when it's something that we don't want to do? Do we let the fear of the unknown keep us from action? Do we need to repent of this? Is God calling some of us to reconcile a a relationship? Is he calling some of us to forgive someone who we have not been able to forgive? Do we need to confess a hidden sin to someone? Do we need to offer up a part of our heart to God that we have been unwilling to surrender to him? Wherever you are at this morning, I can be certain of this. God wants all of you. And he wants all of me, too. He wants our hearts. He wants our soul. He wants our mind. And he wants our strength. May we be the ones who respond humbly, quickly, and wholeheartedly when he calls. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that it it, it holds a light up to our hearts and it reveals our need for you. I thank you that you are patient with us, that you, you understand our weakness and that you're able to sympathize with us. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit, which you've given us as our helper, our comforter, and our guide. Reveal to us the things that we ought to change in our lives. God, help us to be obedient followers who are quick to respond to your word. Remind us that that we are not Lord over our, our lives, but you are. And you desire all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We thank you for your grace and mercy afforded to us in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.